0: Shortcast Club.
1: Hi, I'm Avi Kaufman, founder of Shortcast Club. Each week, we highlight some of our favorite shortcasts. If you like variety, this is the podcast for you. First up today, an episode of Don't Just Win, Dominate with Bill Harper, a marketing and branding expert. In this shortcast, he delivers a two minute case study of what made Dollar Shave Club's marketing so effective.
2: All right, today we're gonna break it down. How did Dollar Shave Club come into a market against category heavyweights like Schick and Gillette? And make a significant dent. How did they steal market share? Everybody is going to say, oh Bill, it was the video. The video was so funny. Yeah, Yeah, the video was great, but that's not what it was. The story that they told is what really got people's attention and it was incredibly strategic. The idea of don't pay for shave tech you don't need is an incredibly powerful concept when you think about how much people hate paying the price that they do for these expensive razors. When you're spending 15 or 20 bucks for a razor because you lost it at the airport or whatever, you're ticked off about it. And by coming out as a team and saying, don't be taken advantage of, they eked out a whole portion of the public that really hated having to pay that expense unnecessarily. And by further pointing out, hey, what is it that you think you're paying for when you're paying all of that money? Well, you're paying for Federer to stand there and be our borrowed interest spokesperson. Once he put that into people's heads, They couldn't stop thinking about it because they didn't want to be taken advantage of. Now, is that applicable to everybody? No. Some people love spending, uh, paying a lot for expensive things, and they don't bother. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's you know fifteen bucks for a razor, who cares? But for a big portion of the public that does mean something and it really got under their skin emotionally and once they built that emotional interest they were off to the races now of course they had to follow it up with having a great product and having good customer service and doing all the rest of it and they did a phenomenal job of wrapping themselves up in this were for the common man kind of ideology, right? The things that they shipped in were in cardboard boxes and it was all very simple and they made the language playful and anything other than being corporate like Gillette and Schick are. So when you take a look at it from a case study standpoint, the story was incredibly powerful and then the way that they delivered it was equally so, which allowed them to come in and deliver a consistent, repetitive, uh, consumer-engaging uh, strategy that helped them to build that business.
1: It sounds obvious in retrospect, but at the time, that looked like a case of David versus Goliath. Next, we hear from Holly Schroeder, a licensed clinical social worker, with a one-minute shortcast on how she teaches her children to set appropriate boundaries. More than that, she explains why this is an important lesson.
3: Something that I've taught my kids in my house that I am super happy about. If my kids don't like something that they don't wanna do something or participate in an activity, they say, no thank you. Seems logical enough, right? If someone continues, they say, please respect my boundaries. I don't know if it's just my family in general, but a lot of times the adults or other people in our family will feel like they're just playing. So if my son says, no thank you because they're tickling him, they will continue to tickle him because they're just playing, they're just teasing. And he's three and he will say, please respect my boundaries. Him pointing out that somebody is not respecting their boundaries is bringing awareness to the fact that they're not listening to him. His voice deserves to be heard. Just because he's three does not mean that you get to do whatever you want. This is teaching him that his voice matters, that he is important, his opinions matter, his boundaries matter. So it seems like maybe a silly thing for somebody to be teaching their young child, but this is going to help him tremendously in the future with setting appropriate healthy boundaries with people and pointing out when they're not respecting them.
1: Next, we hear from Nathan Nobus, a philosophy professor at Morehouse College. This is his response to the view that you can't have ethics if you don't believe in God. But don't worry, this is not one of those tedious does God exist debates. We don't really talk religion on this podcast. Rather, he's presenting a philosophical thought experiment.
4: Hey, so there's a certain type of person that you can find on the internet, and probably they exist in real life, that says like, there couldn't be ethics without religion. Nothing could be right or wrong or good or bad if there weren't a God. Um, This is sort of fairly common in certain circles and I think what this suggests is uh, a they probably just haven't taken a class on these sorts of topics or learn from people who take classes on these topics or they just haven't thought about it using examples using real world examples is often very important so again they say there couldn't be ethics without God well really is that true think about some examples Um, here's a simple one that I often use Um, haven't heard about one of these in a while but probably they're still happening. What if there's like a school shooting and all sorts of terrible things happen? Uh, When people hear about this, um, they are apt to quickly think that is wrong. What the shooter did was very bad, that was wrong. Um, They might not feel a whole lot about it anymore because they're just so burnt out on it, but they think what the shooter did was wrong. Um, You know, hurting all those people was wrong. No good reason to do it and it was wrong. So the question though is we can ask why? Like why was it wrong? And a lot of people think, well, that's like a stupid question. It's obvious why it's wrong. I mean, it was wrong to harm those people, hurt them in these various ways. It was disrespectful. They didn't agree to this happening. Um, They could step back and ask, like, would the shooter, like, really want that sort of thing done to them? Um, So the shooter is, like, uh, being arbitrary and inconsistent and not following rules that they would want to apply to themselves. People could observe that, well, when this stuff happens, it makes for a worse society for everybody. They could give all sorts of reasons why uh, the action is wrong. Um, Now, going back to the person who says that, who says that, no, those actions would be wrong only if God commands us to not do them or only if God is displeased when we do them. Well, here's the question. Why would God command us to not be school shooters? Why, if there were a God, would God be displeased with school shooters? Um, Here's the dilemma. There's either an answer or not. There's either a reason why God would command that or not. If there's no reason, then it's just like a random arbitrary thing. I don't know. He just like flipped a coin. That doesn't seem right. That isn't right. However, if there are reasons why God would command people to not be school shooters, be displeased. Well, what are those reasons? Those reasons are all the things that people mentioned a few moments ago. Um, you know, it's harmful. It's disrespectful. It's mean. It's arbitrary and inconsistent. Um, There's all sorts of reasons. So those reasons would be why God would command us to not do this. So ultimately, this is why it's just sort of not true. No, it's not true that you can't have ethics without religion um, or belief in God or God existing. Because if God would command things, God would command them for reasons. And we can figure out what those reasons are and talk about them and stuff like that. So there's a lot more to say here. But um, this is a common... Criticism of this sort of view that goes back to Socrates a couple thousand years ago related to the Euthyphro problem. Oh, let me throw in one more little thing. People sometimes respond, well, doing those sorts of things is contrary to God's nature, God's essential nature. Well, again, why would God have that nature or a nature that opposes school shootings as opposed to one that celebrates school shootings? There's either a reason or not. And uh, if it's not, it's just this random thing. God could have been different. But that doesn't seem right. So there are reasons, and those reasons are um, what makes actions wrong and not wrong. All right, this is a real quick thing. Uh, Take an ethics class, learn more about these sorts of things. Uh, Dive deep somewhere else. All right, I hope this helps, bye.
1: Fourth on our podcast this week, we hear Trivium U, Timeless Training for Professional Communicators, with Dr. Ben Crosby, a professor of communication. In this episode, he explains how better to answer a question, specifically for a job interview, but this really applies to any setting.
5: Tips for being remembered in a job interview. How to answer a complex, difficult question. Here's the main piece of advice I give people. Don't answer the question right away. That's what most amateur communicators do. They get a question, They blurt out an answer. It's probably a complex question, but they don't care. They don't understand the meaning of the question. They just want to look like they're in command. So they rush through an answer. It's rambling. It's incoherent. It's irrelevant. Instead, do this. Stop and restate or rephrase the question. For example, let's say the interviewer asks, what are some of your expectations in your role in this job? Sounds like a simple question, but it's not. That calls for a restatement or rephrasing. So you stop, you pause, and then you say, it sounds like you're asking what some of my expectations are in terms of what I would get out of the job and maybe what my expectations are in terms of what I would contribute within the job. Is that correct? And the interviewer is gonna say, yeah, absolutely. And now you have an organized answer that you can give. You can talk first in terms of these expectations and second in terms of these expectations. When you restate or rephrase, you take command and control of the question. You seem like you're in control now because you are in control and now you can give a far more informed answer.
1: Next up, we hear from Stacy Savage, a.k.a. the Texas Trash Talker, a zero waste expert who helps businesses reduce waste. In this one minute shortcast, it's part of a series she's doing answering the most frequent questions about zero waste. If you find this as interesting as I do, I would encourage you to find and follow her short cast about this.
6: Part three of my series answering your most pressing questions on zero waste. Again, these are the most uh, searched questions online regarding zero waste. So I am tackling them for y'all one by one. We're going to start right here with the darkest green question, does zero waste make a difference? Absolutely. Zero waste is a global efficiency concept, meaning this can be used in businesses, government agencies, nonprofits, institutions, retail mall outlets, you name it. When businesses are not sending materials to landfill and instead they're recycling in uh, food waste composting, then that creates jobs in our local communities. Uh, Well-paying jobs with dignity where these workers are keeping our communities clean. Not only that, these resources are being used in higher and better ways instead of just being buried in a landfill. Like and follow for more.
1: Next up, we have productivity tips for remote workers from Eden Gold's shortcast, Life After High School, Your Ultimate Guide to Thriving in Adulthood.
7: My friends, welcome back. Eden Gold here, TikTok's adulting expert. And on this page, we give you all of the tips, tricks, and latest hacks to thrive in adulthood. This community, we have a goal of setting you up for early financial, personal, and professional success. So join the party, join the club. And today we have a very awesome topic to talk about. And that is productivity tips for remote workers. So this can be anything from somebody who is studying for school. That is something that you're doing on your own time. Anything that requires you to set your own schedule. So that can be studying for that, that can be an actual remote job, or that can be starting a small business or anything in between. If that applies to you, Here are some of my best tips. Stay tuned. I hope you love them. Number one, we're going to make sure that we have a sensory isolation playlist ready and available. Now, I know a lot of you probably already know I, you play music when you go to the gym, when you do work, so on and so forth. But if we can already have a playlist that's already on YouTube that really helps us to zone in on what we're doing, a very soothing, um, pleasing to the ear, calming playlist that helps us focus on what we're doing. We can get so much more done because we're less likely to see and hear and, and get all these outside distractions in our little bubble. I like to go to YouTube and type in lo-fi beats and I also like to mix it with the Pomodoro study method. This is a study technique that I rave about and I will rave about for my entire life and it's a period of studying followed by a mandatory break and so there's videos on YouTube that have that timer already into the playlist. So I like the lo-fi hip-hop, I like I really like Bosa Nova which is smooth jazz and I really really like either a deep house mix or... What is it called? The sound of ocean waves. And you can even type in ocean waves mixed with lo-fi and bring that up. And these will really just calm you, make you feel good. And if you already have a playlist you love, comment down below or in the comments what that playlist is so we can all check it out. Two, we're gonna talk about some visual cue seating. What that means is that you're not gonna be facing where the door is opening because your peripheral vision actually accounts for 80% of your vision, whereas what you can directly see only accounts for 20% of your vision. So the majority of what we see is in our peripheral vision and not what we're exactly staring at directly so if you are trying to focus but you keep seeing people walk in the door walk out of the door wave their hands you know we always talk with our hands so on and so forth it can be very distracting even on a subconscious level where you might not even realize it and then you're like okay why was I at the coffee shop for four hours and feel like I got nothing done that can be why even if you're not directly aware of it So sit somewhere not facing the door. And a pro tip would be that if it's raining, sit facing a window because there's something so soothing about seeing those water droplets just on the window that you're looking at, and it can bring you a lot of of peace. Thanks, Cora. And lastly, this goes into what I was saying about the Pomodoro study method. It's mandatory work breaks. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a sentence. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a project. When that timer goes off after 25, 30, or an hour, um, 60 minutes worth of work, take that mandatory five or 10 minute break because that's going to help you prevent Feeling burnout, prevent feeling mentally fatigued, prevent your legs from going dead. When I do this at my house and my timer goes off, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I stop and I'll go do the dishes for five or ten minutes. Whenever the timer goes off, that's when I go back to my work. Um, or I'll stretch, or I'll do a couple of bicep curls or push-ups. So you're getting a lot more done than feeling like you have just been staring at a computer all day long. Again, it's called the pump it's called the pomodoro study technique if you have a different technique you like to use comment down below and let me know what your favorite tip is as a remote worker follow me for all things adulting and i can't wait to see you guys in the next one
1: for my sensory isolation playlist i usually put on some edm or electronic dance music seventh on our shortcast playlist today let's hear from janelle romero a new york city labor and employment lawyer she shares with us an inspiring part of her story and law school application from seven years ago.
8: Going through a lot of old documents and deleting things I didn't need anymore, and I came across my diversity statement when I applied to law school. One of the documents that a lot of law schools make you submit is a diversity statement. It's basically your opportunity to explain how you and your background would contribute to the diversity of the school and of the legal profession. So here's mine. Keep in mind, I wrote this in 2016. I was fortunate enough to be born into a large, loving family that has kept very close ties to its roots in the Dominican Republic because my culture was such an integral part part of my upbringing I wasn't always aware of the differences between my peers and myself such as the fact that a household of seven people is not considered average. When I was 12 years old my father was deployed to Iraq for a year and a half. It was during this time that I truly learned the importance of family and tradition in my household. Being the oldest I had to mature much more quickly than expected in order to help my mother seeing as my younger sister was only six months at the time. As I learned how to cook and care for my sisters, I developed a greater appreciation for my culture and the traditions that went along with it. Because of the love my family has for its culture, I developed a fascination with cultures and peoples around the world. As a child, I regularly participated in missionary trips with my grandmother to the Dominican Republic where we would distribute toys, clothes, and basic necessities. As I grew older, I seized every opportunity I was given to travel and experience different cities from a local perspective. The summer before my senior year of college, I decided to move to Rome, Italy for three months in order to intern for a language school. While being there, I was given the opportunity to work for an attorney and even teach language classes in both English and Spanish to foreign exchange students from China. My fondest memories in Rome took place at Sant'Egidio Soup Kitchen. In order to fully immerse myself in the Italian culture and understand the language and people better, I decided to volunteer a few days a week with the local, local soup kitchen. I quickly developed relationships with many of the regular visitors who would tell me stories and exchange language lessons with me. I've always had a passion for helping the less fortunate and I hope to be able to continue doing so in my career. Observing and immersing myself in such diversity has helped me appreciate the need to listen to and understand the needs of others in order to work well with my peers. My experiences and desire to learn more about others allows me to have an open mind that does not constrict me in how I view other members of my community. I hope to gain more experiences in law school that will allow me to continue to help others in significant ways regardless of their backgrounds. I feel that my experiences have made me a much more well-rounded and understanding individual, which in turn allows me to contribute to my community and adapt to my surroundings in an extremely effective way. Stop, I'm so adorable.
1: Next, we hear from Sumana Jetty in her short cast, Evidence-Based Workplace Wellness, where she talks about how community care should be thought of as part of a workplace wellness care plan.
9: Workplace wellness is beyond just self-care. Let's think about community care what exactly is effective community care? Let's learn. Community care is the next frontier in workplace wellness. It's changing the way organizations promote employee well-being. My name is Swana Jedi. I teach you evidence-based workplace wellness research. Let's learn how effective community care is going to help your workplace wellness. A workplace that promotes collective well-being and support for the employees is community care employees want to feel a sense of support inclusivity and belonging in the workplace there are several different components of community care that you should be looking for in the workplace for example communication and collaboration mentoring and peer support, empathy and compassion, recognition and appreciation, work-life balance, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility and sense of belonging, wellness programs and resources. My most favorite one, continuous learning, feedback and improvement. Employees and workplaces can adopt self-care as well as community care approaches to foster collective wellness.
1: Ninth, it's the Unstock Initiative with Deontay Fuchs, a clinical psychologist and anxiety coach helping people shift stuck anxiety so that they can get back to living their lives uninterrupted. In this short cast, she provides a helpful mindset for dealing with panic attacks.
0: Imagine if a panic attack was just a storm and you knew exactly how to weather it. I've just come off a call with my clients who struggle with panic attacks. And let me tell you, across the board, people who struggle with panic attacks all say the same thing. They're afraid that they're going to lose control in the midst of that panic attack. And then they're gonna be stuck with people they don't know while they're busy losing control. And that is the most frightening thing for them. Quick disclaimer nobody has actually lost control. In fact, most people will describe the losing control as like mass hysteria that happens. And yet the vast majority of people that I know that struggle with panic attacks, panic quietly into to themselves, like other people around them hardly know that this is what's happening, which means that the storm is happening internally. Now imagine if you knew how to weather that, the way that sailors just weather the storm on an ocean, right? They don't take their boats, anchor it down and try to resist the crashing waves. No, they allow that boat to go on the waves and to roll with it, which is exactly how we weather the storm of panic attack. This is why I have a dedicated bonus training inside my ease boot camp for my clients who are struggling with panic attacks. Because it is just so important for you to know how to weather the internal storm of a panic attack so that it can naturally subside.
1: For our final shortcast today, we hear from Chuck Ellis about why people avoid sales as a profession and why maybe we should rethink that.
2: Why most people avoid sales and marketing. People mistakenly think that sales is convincing someone to do something they don't want to do. It's actually just the opposite because all you're doing is finding people who have a problem that you can solve. People also think it takes talent. It's a skill, just like anything else. Once you learn how to communicate, you're able to find your target audience and solve their problem. So even though it is the best way to either make part or full-time income because you don't trade hours for dollars, that's why people avoid sales.
1: I hope you enjoyed this taste of some of our favorites from this week. There are links for each of their creators in the show notes, so you can learn more about any of them and follow each of them. Also, if you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review. It helps surface the podcast to other potential listeners. We really appreciate your support as we grow our show. Check out more great shows available on the Shortcast Club app. Download the app from the iOS or Android App Store. Search for Shortcast Club. That's two words. Thanks, and happy listening.